Russell Jung is Chair and Professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University. A sociologist who examines race and religion, he is the author of Family Sacrifices, The Worldviews and Ethics of Chinese Americans, Oxford Press 2019, and Mountain Movers, Student Activism and the Emergence of Asian American Studies, UCLA Center 2019. His spiritual memoir, At Home in Exile, Zondervan 2016, details his community organizing and urban ministry with refugees from Cambodia and Burma. Please welcome Russell. Thanks, David. I, I'd also like to thank the organize, organizers at this conference, um, Isaac and Bonnie and Enoch and David. They've done a really good job, and they've been really terrific hosts, and I really appreciate all the work. And, and I, I appreciate David's comments about um, the aim of this conference is the intersection of Asian American studies, which is what I do. I am um, from San Francisco State. We, um, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the founding of Asian American studies as a field. Um, at State, students went on a five-month strike, and that sort of ended. And so um, it's fun to be at a site where Asian American studies is wrestling with theology with ordinary Asian American Christians. And I, so I like to claim myself as an Asian, ordinary Asian American Christian. And so I feel like I'm really at where I should be today to learn from you guys and to, um, to have good conversations. Um, <clears throat> so I'd also like to thank uh, Jane and Janelle for, for their provocative talks. And since I have, I was gonna make comments and questions during their time, but I just wanted to make a couple of things. From Jane's talk, what's really obvious for me is you saw the shift um, between Johnson and the Nixon years and how Republicans used the South, the Southern strategy as a white backlash, right? And clearly it's, that's what's happened recently. And you can see the whole Trump phenomenon as pretty much the same thing exaggerated. Um, I actually have a point on Janelle's point. You know, she has all these confusing explanations of why, <coughs> not explanations, confusing data about why, why do we do, and I, I'd like to suggest one other um, factor that shapes Asian American evangelicals, especially first generation. And you have um, a sense of racial discrimination and a minority as a racial group, and that's pushing a lot of why Asian American evangelicals vote the way they do. But the second factor is their sense of being a religious embattled minority. And that's a different type of discrimination, right? And so those who feel like not only are they a racial minority, but they're a religious minority, and that um, we as Christians are facing a threat from Muslims and from uh, non-Christian hordes, that would sort of drive their conservative perspective. So I, I recommend that that dual minoritization and that sense, <coughs> Janelle writes a lot about the boundaries of like who are Christians, who belongs, and if, um, and if we feel more embattled, then your boundaries tighten and your, your politics become more conservative. So that's my simple explanation or her confusing data. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what I'm gonna talk about today is that this conference has three aims. One is to, sort of reflect on and to understand the dynamics of Asian American political participation and sort of um, address some misconceptions. So I'll do that for the first 10 minutes. The second um, thing is to look at, well, what are the cultural resources that Asian American Christians have and to reflect upon them? So I'll do that for the second 10 minutes. And the third thing is to have, um, 
to do Asian American theology, AAT as David calls it, and I'm gonna try to do that from my own lived perspective as an ordinary Asian American Christian. And my main point is, if you're gonna do Asian American theology, you need to have food. And I saw someone up with snacks over there, and uh, that's the first thing. Besides conversations, you need food, so, okay. All right, so, You look at this headline, Asian Americans, a sleeping giant. This was a New York Times article about Asian American political voter turnout. And the article talked about how Asian Americans have such a low turnout, 27% at midterm elections. And it also talks about, well, as a sleeping giant, they have the possibility of being a major swing vote and being able to um, really affect elections, but they just have to be awakened, right? They've been saying that about Asian Americans for the last four decades. It's, it's the metaphor that they've always used. We're sleeping, we're, you know. And for me, <laughs> but we're a giant. So there, there's, there's three problems with this metaphor. First, I think it raises up Orientalist um, stereotypes about, well, we're a giant, we're a yellow peril, right? Um, and that if you awaken us, then we could either be scary or we could be used. Um, Another problem with that is that we're sleeping. And to assume that Asian Americans, because they don't vote, are apolitical and apathetic is wrong. Um, So never say Asian Americans are invisible or silent. You know if you go to dim sum or ride on the bus, Asian Americans are loud and that they're heard. So to say that we're silent or invisible, I think that's taking a white colonized perspective. You're taking the white perspective. Yeah, we're invisible to whites, but for Asians, we're not invisible. So quit saying that, all right? So we're not sleeping. We've been active transnationally. We've been active in our communities. And we've been also, the third thing I'm going to make, why this is a misconception, is that we actually have been moving and we have been shifting as a racialized voting block. So here you can see the transition um, that in 1992, only 33% of the Asian American electorate voted for Clinton. But since, um, well, it's just been increasing less. So now two thirds of Asian Americans vote Democratic. So there's a major, major shift, and it's been pretty steady, right, that we've turned blue and we're voting Democratic. And so I want to explain or ask why has there been a, such a noticeable shift? Um, of Asian Americans moving to the left, moving more liberal, and including Asian American evangelicals. So there's four main factors that um, I examined, and these are what um, others have said are the primary reasons of why Asian Americans vote the way they do. And you guys have mentioned it in your conversations. First is um, their migration and generational status. So Asian Americans are the least partisan of any group. So only a third of us, right, are Democrat, a third of us are Republican, and a third are independent or? Until 2018, actually, though. Until, okay. This just helps you, where we became a little bit more of a Democrat. Democrat, okay, yeah, okay, thank you. (laughs) So why are we so, and our lack of partisanship makes a big difference, and that's that's the second point. but if you come from a country from like China where it's communist, clearly you don't want to align yourself with a political party because you, you are trying to avoid where you left. And again, generational status we've talked a lot about as the second generation comes of age, they're a lot more Americanized and educated in the United States. 
So that's sort of clear. We all assume, oh, our the first generation is old and conservative and traditional. Second generation is liberal, young, and educated. Um, secondly, party affiliation and partisan politics makes a major difference on how we vote and which party we uh, align with. Um, there are push and pull factory factors um, that are pushing us um, away from the Republicans. And basically, it's the Republican rhetoric of being anti-immigrant that's pushing Asian Americans away, saying um, the US is a white nation born uh, as a white Christian nation, that drives away the 85% of non-evangelicals, right, of Asian Americans. So if we're saying America's a white Christian nation, then we don't belong here, right? The pull factors are that Democrat, the Democratic Party is a lot more likely to, to call Asian American voters to register them and to bring them out. Um, and now this is the thing that Janelle talks about a lot, is that race <clears throat> makes a big factor, especially um, and including Asian-American evangelicals. And so race has two um, impacts. First, um, when you have that <clears throat> perceived discrimination that Janelle was talking about, then the party of minorities is the Democratic Party. So clearly you're going to, if you feel like you're discriminated against and you're a minority, then you're going to align yourself with the party that's for the minority group, the Democrats. The second thing that racialization and developing a racialized identity does is that you not only become aware of your discrimination, but you also become aware of the ra racialized ethnic interests that you have. And so that's why you have the conflicting, confusing. Um, if they think it's an ethnic interest for them, then Asian Americans will vote on it. And I'm going to talk about it later, that <clears throat> issues around regarding the family and education, regarding health care and um, not so much climate change, but um, government spending. <clears throat> there are very ethnicized, racialized ways that Asian Americans develop their own political attitudes around those things. So, so race impacts us in terms of identity, and race impacts us in terms of the kinds of interests we vote on. Got that? Now, for you guys as theologians, the third thing is religion is a major um, influence. Um, what Janelle writes about, she could talk about it, is uh, how you see America's national identity and whether you belong to it, um, and whether the United States is God's chosen country, that sort of theology really shapes how people vote and affects how they think about immigration. Um, your context and the, the type of congregation that you attend, so someone asked that question, well, are they multi-ethnic churches or ethnic churches? That really makes a big difference because that becomes your filter bubble, right? What kind of messages do you hear about how we should vote? And then the third way that religion affects you is your values, like are you anti-abortion or are you like for uh, social justice kind of concerns? So in those ways, that's, those are the key variables. You guys following me? So, okay, so here are the, what we found. I don't know if you can see it. So this is pretty consistent with Janelle's findings because it's Janelle's data. <laughs> <laughs> and I gotta say, you know. The, I can show the same data. There's a different survey I did. Yeah, she's done like 20 surveys, and the, you know how in the Old Testament, you know, the poor are you're supposed to leave the grain on the fringes for the poor to pick up and eat. <laughs> so I take all the data that Janelle leaves on the ground, and I I analyze her leftover data, and my whole career is made up on, Jen on Janelle's no. leftovers. <laughs> That's sort of pathetic. Oh. <laughs> but let's go to the data. Um, OK, I, I guess you can't see it. But this is Asian American vote by religious group. So I don't just look at um, 
evangelicals are somewhere. They're right here. Okay, yeah. But overall, um, I, this is primarily looking at um, generational status, which is what we, the second generation always care about generational status, like first generation, what do we care about generation for? You know, we're here. Um, so um, in general, <clears throat> blue is for Clinton and US born. But the main thing about overall is that <clears throat> um, this is before the election in 2016. So, and it's just that immigrant generation are more undecided and they remain more undecided until the election. And that's just a part of their lack of being um, socialized in the American political process, not getting as much information from the ethnic press. Got that? And so um, overall, the second generation is more ready and more um, sort of selective about who they are, clear about who they're going to vote for. But where you see major generational differences are the minority religions. That as you become more and more aware of your religious minority status among Buddhists and Hindus, you become more democratic. Got that? Now, the opposite trend is going on among evangelicals. Where are the evangelicals? Yeah, here. That you're less likely to vote for Clinton. You're more a Trump supporter if you're an evangelical. And again, that's where we have that transcendent identity factor coming in. That evangelicals think, oh, I'm just an American. God's more important. Who's going to say, when you ask a question, what's more important to your religion or your race? No one's going to say, oh, no, God's not more important. My Asianness is. No, no Christian should say that. Um, so for evangelicals, their um, racial, no, their religious identity becomes more significant, and so they're less likely to follow the racialized patterns. Got that? Okay, so that's my first chart. Overall, if you're a part, if you become more aware of your minority status religiously, you become more liberal. But if you become more evangelical, like Asian American second generation, then you become more conservative. That makes sense, right? Now, here's the um, <clears throat> importance of religion. I mean, importance of being Asian American. So this is you know, how important is being Asian American to you? And the more you say, yeah, um, religion's more, uh, my race is important to me, the more likely you are to vote for Tr Clinton. Got that? Mm -hmm. So Asian Americans who have an Asian American consciousness are just clearly more likely to vote for the Democrats. And so even among evangelicals, um, if your Asianness is important to you, you're more likely to vote. If your Asianness is not, important to you, you're more likely to vote for Trump. So if you're an Asian American theologian and you want people to vote a certain way, support that Asian American identity and they'll vote your way. That's my sort of takeaway. Or, or, the, office, or the opposite, if you want them to vote more Republican, don't start an Asian American center. It's not going <laughs> to So that's, that's my pattern. So basically, in summary, Again, both religious minority status and racial minority status make a difference. But you become, as you become aware of that consciousness, if you have higher rates of perceived discrimination, you're going to be more likely to vote Democratic because you align yourself with other minorities. Um, generational status, there are differences over time. But depending on your religion, that generational shift um, differs. Okay, So that's my first thing. Now, I'm going to shift a little bit and talk about my next book that's coming out in May. And again, it's based on Janelle's data. <laughs> Thank you, Janelle. That's what it's for. Yeah. Public use. 
And so um, they, um, we asked for this conference, what are some cultural resources that Asian Americans bring to the civic and political life of America? And I'm arguing that, at least for Chinese Americans and probably for other Asian ethnic groups, that we have this trans-Pacific lived tradition called familialism. And it's not necessarily the same as Confucianism. It's not necessarily the same as folk religion, where your ancestry or worships. But it's trans-Pacific. It is carried over from the Asia, but it's lived. It's how people think is most important to them. It's their ultimate value system. And if you ask, so this is a study of um, Asian American non-religious people. They're the religious nuns. So I'm a Christian, so I'm used to all these people with beliefs. And so these are people who are nuns, who have no beliefs. And so I'm asking them, well, if you're a nun, what do you believe, right? Not a Catholic nun in terms of the N-O-N-E. N-O-N-E. That's what it means here. But it turns out, it's not like the nuns have, yeah, nuns have no values or beliefs. They actually do have values and beliefs, and we just have to get at them, right? And so calling them nuns is sort of a misnomer. Anyway, they do have ultimate value systems. They do have an ethical system, and they do have a core identity that shapes their self-understanding and how they relate to other people. And it's all based around the family. And you'll totally get this when I show my next slide. Family becomes central narrative by which they describe their lives, how they understand their lives, how they understand their past, and how they understand their future. So when they talk about their past, Chinese Americans, they talk about, oh yeah, my, my ancestors worked so hard and gave me everything, and so I owe my life to them. They say that a lot. You know, Without them, I would not be here. right? And that's why we venerate them. That's why we light incense to them. And so they talk a lot about their ancestors' hard work, because a lot of us come through chain migration, through, um, through peasant lives and more to come here. And so they recognize the hardships. And they also understand the hardships of the migration process. So these are second generation, 21 to 40 year olds, young people. So this is your age thing. These people also understand, well, why, what, what's important to you now? And for students, you who are theology students, they say, we study hard because we want to give back to my parents' sacrifice. So we have that additional immigrant bondage of studying hard because you want to you know, honor your parents. And then actually even getting a good career isn't necessarily for themselves. It's to pay back their parents for all their parents' sacrifice for them, right? So this is a self-understanding of young Asian Americans that they say, yeah, my career and my, um, my schooling is very much enmeshed with my family and giving back and making the most of the opportunities that my parents have given me, or else it would have been wasted. It's the whole logic of immigration. If they came here and sacrificed so much, then clearly I should give back. And then when they think about the future, it's all about providing opportunities for their kids. Right? Again, it's like, I've been given so much, I want to give back as much and provide more. So you guys get that, right? So in my book, I talked about all the ways familialism gets inculcated and socialized through, um, through rituals. And so we have formal rituals, like um, from cradle to grave, like you have a tea party. No, what do you have when you're a baby? You have a red egg party, right? Or you have a dole, and then it goes up, and then you have your tea ceremony and a wedding, and then you do these things when you die, right? So you have formal rituals that reinforce family. But there's a lot of informal <coughs> rituals that Chinese Americans have that reinforce family today. And so a lot of people talked about um, going on family vacations, right, and the cruises. 
And so I, my family took a cruise from the East Coast. And when we went on, there were all these like Chinese and South Asian families. And they had like 30 people to a family. And they're all eating at the Asian breakfast buffet together. And that's, you know, but those things are really meaningful. Those are the central experience. This is what makes life worth living for them, right? Is being able to eat and eat with your family. And so <clears throat> that kind of ritual, um, a lot of people talked about, um, yeah, family reunions or going to Chinese school or having rotating potlucks to reinforce that sense of shame and education and, and family. Um, and then finally, we also talk about, we call them um, table manners. There's little micro gestures that you do, like pouring tea for your elders. You know, you, rotating food, you always serve your elders first. When you get in the car, who sits in the front, right? There's all these little ways where we reinforce the family that when you think about it, totally reinforces the value that family is the most important thing. So, you got that. Does it make sense to you, right? Now, <clears throat> Janelle's data reinforces it. When you ask Chinese Americans, what are your top goals in life? And these are young people. <clears throat> um, being a good parent is their top goal. And for second generation, it's an even higher goal than the first generation. 96% say being a parent is their top goal in life. When I was in my 20s, I didn't think about being a parent, but these guys are, and this is their top goal. So it's sort of really interesting, right? And like, you would think, oh, uh, getting a high-paying job would be a really big thing. But no, it's having a family and being a parent is the top goal. Striking, isn't it? Now, here are other things. Um, it's how important should your parents have a role in your career choice? And um, I, don't even, I don't even know what these numbers First generation, this is uh, some influence, and this is a lot of influence. So for the first generation, 78% say parents have, should have a role in their careers. And that's pretty high, right? First generation, they're from Asia, it makes sense. But even for second generation, 51% say, yeah, my parents have a role in my career choice, whether I become an accountant or a nurse or a theology student. So. Um, so again, that role of family is really high and significant. And then here's another thing. Should your parents have a role in your spousal choice? And the first generation, um, we have what, 60, 72%. Yeah, go ahead and pick my, you know, pick my wife, I don't care. And then, uh, but even for second generation, 50% say that their parents should have a role. Again, these just sort of reveal how important family is to them. Familialism then is a cultural resource for political mobilization. And so um, Jane showed the photo of why <clears throat> Chinese American churches and Korean American churches in California actually mobilized around same-sex marriage, right? There's all these issues, political issues, but the one issue that actually got the churches out is same-sex marriage. And then you think, well, that's really weird. Why would this sort of issue, you know, um, mobilize them. And for me, what I notice is that both groups, those for it and those against it, use family discourse to mobilize their people. And again, it's the logic of migration, I think. The reason why everybody immigrates is for their family. It's not necessarily for themselves, but it's for their family. And so when the idea of family gets threatened by same-sex marriage, people will come out. So that's my, my thinking. But whether or not that's true, we do know that people use family discourse to mobilize people, right? And then those who are for same-sex marriage, they also use family discourse to support their, their, um, 
the, their side. So I'm going to suggest, <clears throat> as a cultural resource, if we want to get Asian Americans more involved in civic engagement and more politically mobilized, you have to use notions of family to galvanize and to mobilize them. So if you want to do, talk about climate change, you got to think about what, what kind of world are we going to leave our grandchildren? And that touches people, right? If you're going to talk, that's why the affirmative action Harvard thing is such a big deal. It's like my kids' educational opportunities are being threatened, right? Black Lives Matter, they're not part of my family, but if we make black lives part of, you know, black people part of our family, then they'll care. And that's how you have to sort of use that discourse, use that cultural resource to theologically think, reflect, and build upon to get people involved. Got that? Okay, so I'm going to show you one more ways that how family discourse um, and the Asian American political perspective is unique and can be mobilized. So this is my last book. <clears throat> it's a it's my story. And at one of the conferences that Jane and I were at, Amos Young, the Fuller theology professor, said that African Americans have a, a theology of liberation and because they went from slavery to freedom. Latinos and Latinx have a theology of borderlands, that the borders cross them. And so we have to live between worlds. And they, their theology is from that perspective. And Amos said, Asian Americans have a theology of exile that as perpetual foreigners, as migrants, as people who feel like they don't belong because we face discrimination, we should be developing this theology of exile. Got it? I really like that idea because I wrote a book about theology. <laughs> the, book of my, the title of my book is At Home in Exile. He said exactly when the book came out, I go, hey, Amos, you're so smart. <laughs> so let me give you an example of this theology of exile that uses familialism. Um, when you talk about political and civic engagement, there's two major models in Asian, in American, mainstream American evangelicalism. And this is sort of broadly, this is, I, I don't know theology, this is what I read from the bestsellers of the topic. One is you have the um, Tim Keller, Andy Crouch thing. It's very triumphal. Christians should use their power as the creative class to transform our cities. And then when we transform the cities, that'll trickle down throughout the rest of the world, right? So, and Asian Americans, they love Keller because, yeah, we're the creative class. We have the chance to change the world. It's very appealing, right, to think, I can make a difference. I can change the world. So, yay. And that's why you have the Seattle Pacific University. I thought this was so audacious. Engaging culture, changing the world. You know? White people say that. And, like, Asians, like, I don't change the world. I just, you know, just want to be able to live peacefully and eat dim sum. But they want to go out and do everything, engage other... So it's, so it's a big vision, right? We can actually make change. It's a perspective of privilege. Stanley Hauerwas has the other sort of perspective. Where's, uh, where's uh, Jonathan? <laughs> I feel like I need a high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Oh, come on. This is a fallen world. All Christians could do is be a colonized cultural colony, and we'll be a light post of our difference. But we can't change the structures. We can't change capitalism. Right? So you have these two extreme binaries. Go out and change the world because God's given us the power. It's God's nation. We're God's chosen people. It's like, nope, we can only be a light and a difference. Right? And so you have these extreme binaries. And for me, they were neither were satisfying. So I've been doing <clears throat> urban ministry for 30 years now. And I actually um, relocated into a low-income neighborhood called the Murder Dubs. And I lived in that apartment complex called Oak Park. 
And that apartment complex was really dilapidated. And so we sued our landlord. We got 200 people. We organized our fellow tenants. And we won this gigantic settlement that's in the San Francisco Chronicle. So it was one of the largest landmark housing settlements. And it seems like we won justice. And so now you see new Oak Park as a result. <clears throat> um, so we, got, we forced our landlord to sell the building. It became a nonprofit. Um, we Christians bought the place in front. That was an old crack house. And now it's a preschool for the neighborhood. You know, they have ambient heating and solar panels and a community garden and basketball courts. So you think, woo, this is a good story of how God uses Christians and his people to um, secure justice. But a few late years after, so I used to tell this story and everybody would go, oh, well, well, God's so good, you know, God's a God of justice. And I would, was able to sell a lot of books. But then what happened is that, um, ironically and really sadly, is that the strong sense of community we had at Oak Park and the apartments, it, it really eroded and declined. And so now it's just this sterile suburban apartment complex where nobody interacts, and it's just really boring to me. And the whole ethnic community where the Cambodians used to have these gigantic parties and have this shared life together, it's all gone because they now have a privatized American lifestyle where they all go into their own big homes and just play video games all day, right? And so it's really sad. <clears throat> we feel like we've lost our community. And I talk to the other, my, my fellow tenants like, and a lot of people ask us, would you have done the lawsuit now knowing what you've done? We have a better, healthier, better housing conditions. We're more um, stable, and, but, but we've lost our community. And so this has really sort of thrown me for a loop. It's like, can we ever really secure justice in this world? Because now, the, you know, we were, we've been there for 30 years. The neighborhood still has as much sex trafficking. You know, sex trafficking replaced the crack, right? We have gentrification going on, so now there's even more homelessness. Um, it's just a really hard place to be. And it really challenges me, like, well, we as Christians, what's our role? And as an Asian American Christian, what's my role? I got how much time? Um, one minute. <laughs> <laughs> a couple minutes. Okay, I'll just send it here. So this is my story, um, my lessons from if Asian Americans are to develop a theology of exile, I'm turning to one of the felt my uh, an elder in my community. He's a refugee and a Cambodian healer named Bechuan. And so here he looks like one of those stoic Oriental monks um, as the police are in his apartment after a crime. And so when you think about it, <clears throat> Jeremiah's letter to the exiles was really similar. What he is saying to the exiles then is what I'd like to say to you, second-generation Asian-Americans now. They're in the same position. When <clears throat> Jeremiah was writing, he was writing to the second generation. They had been there for a generation, and now they're living in Babylon and saying, well, how do we relate to the empire? Are we supposed to be good citizens of Babylon? Are we supposed to be voting in Babylon? How do we relate to Babylon? And... Uh, it's the same question we could ask ourselves. You guys are going to Princeton, you know, the institution of Babylon, with all the food and all the resources. We're learning the language of Babylon. You guys change your name from like probably Wenho to Daniel or you know, David, you know, or something like that. <laughs> <clears throat> We're eating the foods of Babylon. So what's for the banquet tonight? I don't know. Okay, That's see? All right, I'm sorry, I'm going off. Um, but that's the question. Are we going to assimilate into the American empire or not? 
How do we remain undefiled? What's our Christian identity that's different from the American empire, different from American white evangelicalism, right? And this is what the Lord says. He says, settle down and start families. And I'll, I'll sort of end on that. That's, that's sort of a weird thing, right? Because people are saying, go back home. Go back to Judea. Go back to... And, and so people were hoping that they could go back because they were so oppressed in, in exile. But Jeremiah gives that paradoxical statement, settle down and start families. And that was really weird for me. It's like, why should we settle down in Babylon, right? What's it mean to settle down in Babylon? What's it mean to be assimilated and settled in America? Um, one thing I think is that is actually being family and remaining family as an exile is actually a form of resistance. And for Asian Americans, being family and staying strong as a family is a form of um, an exilic call to justice. So <clears throat> um, when we were forming the lawsuit to fight um, our landlords, some people, like especially Latinos, were fighting for their rights. They were standing up for their rights. That's the American way for justice, right? We have rights, so we should defend them. Some of the Cambodians were doing it because other people were doing it. So they were just doing this group thing, right? So I asked Beck Chuam, this guy, why'd you join the lawsuit? <clears throat> and you think he's a stoic, quiet guy, but he was this really snarky, funny guy. So I go, why'd you join the lawsuit? And he goes, he stares at me and he starts laughing. He goes, I did it for you, Russell. Like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, you are knocking on everybody's door and you know, begging so much, I felt like I should help you out. You know? <laughs> I go, ah. But he was treating me like his family. Get it? He was like a father to me saying, okay, I see my son running around. My responsibility is to support him and do what he's, he's asking, even though it's an inconvenience, even though it's not going to work out. I'm just doing it because as my family, I have a responsibility to him. And for me, understanding that sense of family, from, he's not my real you know, father. I, I can be farther from a Cambodian refugee having gone, I'm fifth generation Chinese, but he, he did see me as his family. So <clears throat> for him, God's shalom, God's sense of justice, justice means taking care of your family. Get it? And injustice occurs when we don't care of take care of each other as our family. It's a real simple understanding of what justice and engagement can look like. And that's my Asian American familialism at work. It's a whole different notion of justice. And so I'll just wrap up here. I have all these different ways of how Americans and mainstream Americans conceive of justice and how we should fight for justice. But an Asian exilic sense of justice based on family, based on trust, based on prayer, is clearly a different, undefiled way of seeking power um, for the good rather than like the mainstream American way. Um, so I'll end there, and thank you for listening. Thank you,